Our Bible reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We follow, we're continuing our series of sermons uh, from the letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapters uh, 12, 13 and 14 tonight. Though I'm only going to be reading the first bit of chapter 12. So if you're using the Pew Bibles tonight, it's on page 1139. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will be looking, reading uh, from verse 1 to 13. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another <clears throat> gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to dim distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and uh, all were made to drink of one spirit. Let us uh, pray together as we come the preaching of God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us tonight as we look at those passages. Um, we pray, Father, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would help us to uh, understand your Word, and you help us to listen, and that you would help us, Lord, to apply uh, those words of yours uh, to our lives. Uh, help us, Lord, tonight uh, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that it would be uh, quite an understatement uh, to call the church at Corinth uh, messy. In chapter 1, uh, we looked at the infighting and the division that existed among the Christians uh, over, their, over who their favorite teacher or preacher was. In chapter 3, then, uh, Paul calls the believers at Corinth incense in the faith. Uh, they are boastful, they are proud. Uh, there is jealousy, there is strife among them. And Paul says to them that they are behaving as if they were still living in the world. In chapter 5, Paul confronts them on the issue of sexual immorality, a kind of immorality that even the pagans, says Paul, did not tolerate. In chapter 6, Paul addresses uh, those in the business world who defrauded their fellow brothers, as well as those who responded by taking them 
to court. In chapter 7, Paul answers multiple questions and scenarios about marriage, relationships, and singleness. In chapter 8, Paul speaks on the issue of food sacrifice to idols and encourages the strong in faith uh, not to be a cause of stumbling to those uh, with a weaker conscience. In chapter 11, Paul addresses the issue of head coverings and how they relate to the roles and responsibilities that God assigns to men and women in the church. Last week, uh, we look at how the rich and powerful abused the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by turning it into a meal that brought division and caused humiliation rather than a meal uh, that would remind believers of their union, union with Christ and with one another. And tonight, uh, we come to the subject of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or more literally, matters of the Spirit. It appears that some of the members of the church at Corinth were particularly preoccupied, if not obsessed, by certain gifts of the Spirit. In a culture where power and excellence and status and hierarchy were treasured and valued, some of the believers at Corinth placed value judgments on certain gifts. Some gifts were seen as more impressive and therefore more coveted and more valued than other gifts. And it brought some division into the church. And so uh, we come to these three chapters, chapters that have sadly divided Christians around the world for the past 100 or so years. What are spiritual gifts? Why are they given? Does every believer in Christ possess a gift of the Holy Spirit? What is the baptism of the Spirit? Should all believers speak in tongues? Should we expect these gifts to be found in the church today? These are just a few questions that people often have when they come to these chapters. So let us look at our passage together tonight. I will recommend that you have your Bibles there open uh, before you. I will be uh, often referring to those passages. We're also going to be looking tonight at chapter 13 and also at chapter 14. Uh, so uh, point number one, I've got four points and then I've got an addendum. It's almost like five-point sermon, not to scare you, just a bit of a warning. Uh, point number one. And no one, says Paul, can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The question here is, uh, how do we recognize? How do we recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life? What is the test of true spirituality? So that's the first thing I think that Paul tries to address as he approaches this issue of spiritual gifts. So this is where Paul begins. In a sense, he, he goes back to the basics. He realizes that this is an issue that he needs to address and that this is an issue that they cannot just uh, push to the side and brush off. Uh, he says to them in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uh, in other words, this is something that Paul believes is important for them to know and understand in their life as believers and in their life as a church. Now, in our days, when it comes to the matter of spiritual gifts, the temptation often is to leave it alone and to ignore it. In some circles, the subject 
uh, has sometimes uh, been uh, the cause of much dispute and controversy. And, and I believe that this was also the case at Corinth. It, it just caused some tensions among the believers there. And so Paul addresses it. And it's uh, going to take him three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And the first thing that he tells us is that it is possible to engage in what seems to be a religious or pious activity and yet be led astray and be spiritually deceived. So I think that's the first thing that he, he tries to say to us, that it's possible to engage in, in what seems to be a religious or pious activity and yet be led astray and be spiritually deceived. And now you've got to keep in your mind this issue that the question in the background here is what constitutes true spirituality? How do we know? So this is what uh, he says to them in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, uh, you were led. What Paul means uh, by this is that when they were pagans, they were led to worship mute and lifeless idols. And they believe in this with all their hearts. But however sincere the spiritual experience was, or however sincere the religious experience appeared to them, it didn't mean that they were truly spiritual. What it meant is that they were deceived. What it meant is that in one way or another, in one sense or another, they were under the control of those idols and those false gods. And Paul is trying to say here, uh, you can look at someone and they're doing all the right thing, all the, it looks pious, looks religious, but that is not necessarily an indicator of where their heart is with God. So pagan worship is an example of that. They go to the temple, they offer their sacrifices, but that doesn't mean that this person is necessarily truly converted, truly spiritual. In a similar way, the same is true of the Christian faith. True spirituality cannot be measured by external religious experiences only, but by what we believe in our hearts and by what we profess with our mouth about God and about Christ. Paul says in verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Uh, which means that the true test of whether someone has received the Spirit of God is whether they sincerely profess faith in Christ as Lord. To profess faith in Christ as Lord uh, is not simply uh, paying lip service to Jesus. It involves surrendering uh, the whole of our lives to Him, to Jesus, the Son of God, and to allow Him uh, to mold us and to rule over our lives, our thoughts and our words and our decision. So we can come to church each week. We can have the most uplifting of religious experience. We can sing songs of praise to God at the top of our lungs. But if our hearts are far from God, if we have not come to Christ recognizing that without Him, uh, we cannot save ourselves and that without him we are without hope of salvation in this world and the next it doesn't mean anything we are not saved and the spirit of god is not in us professing faith in jesus is not something that we can manufacture for ourselves it's the work 
of the Holy Spirit in us. Professing faith in Jesus is not something that we can work hard to achieve or earn or deserve. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, bringing us out of spiritual darkness into God's light, bringing us out of spiritual deadness into spiritual life, bringing us out of a relationship of hostility with God to a relationship of love with God. And this work of transformation in our hearts is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And all the gifts of the Spirit that Paul is going to talk about and is going to unpack is an outflow, says Paul, of this renewed and Spirit-filled relationship that true believers have with Christ. So this is where he starts. This is where he begins. In effect, it's a bit of a word of comfort. He wants to remind them of the basics. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So that's where he starts. Now, before we move on to what Paul is going to then say next about many gifts and to whom the Spirit gives them to, now, before we move on to the next point, um, we need to note one thing. Uh, Paul says in verse 3 that uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can profess Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, if someone is a Christian and professes faith in Jesus, it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit within him. And so, we should reject any teaching that says that there is a category of Christians who are somehow saved but have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Some people, some churches believe that there are two categories of Christians. There are those who are saved, but then they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They have not yet been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then those who are saved, but they've also been baptized. But as we read in verse 3, this is not true. The Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of all those who genuinely profess faith in Jesus. Paul says exactly the same thing in verse 13. And in this verse, he actually uses the language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all, all baptized, all believers baptized in the one Spirit into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink in one spirit. So the Bible couldn't be any clearer. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. To say otherwise would be a contradiction. Because as Paul says, no one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so to the question, is the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and, and how do we know? The answer is this, is Jesus ruling? Is he Lord of our lives? Is he on the throne of our lives? Is God at the center of our lives? Directing every one of our thoughts and our decisions and our actions. Does our faith in God give meaning and purpose and direction to our life? Are we living our lives in light of the word of God, in light of the gospel? So that was our, our first point. Now the second point, the Holy Spirit has blessed 
and continues to bless the church with many gifts. Many gifts. So in verses 4 to 11, Paul is going to unpack uh, the work, the role, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit within the church. He is going to tell us four things about the work of the Holy Spirit. Four things. First, Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit has richly blessed and empowered the church with many gifts. He says in verse 4, and now there are varieties of gifts. In verse 5, he says there are varieties of service. In verse 6, he says there are varieties of activities. Paul defines what those gifts are in verse 7. Uh, there he says to us they are the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, they show forth the Spirit. They are indicators that the Spirit is at work within the community of faith. When you see God blessing His church with teachers and Sunday school te uh, teachers and people serving in the kitchen and leading Sunday school and youth group and connect groups, every, every time you see this, it's a gift from God and it reminds us that the Spirit is at work in our midst, giving gifts, generous gifts. I remember one, this, one of these preachers, uh, I was listening to this sermon, and there's this preacher that would, on Sunday, uh, at the time, uh, pastors would tend to st stand at the door at the beginning of the service and also at the end. I don't know if you remember those times. And this preacher standing at the door there. And what he would do, every time he would see a newcomer walk in, the first thing he would be thinking about would be, I wonder what kind of gift the Lord is bringing to us today. Because he believed that God is generous with the gift and he gives. So the manifestation, those gifts, those manifestations of the Spirit, they reveal the presence of the Spirit in the life of the church. They are testimonies, as it were, of the grace of God in the life of His church. In fact, in the Greek language, the word used for spiritual gift is the word charismata. That could also be translated grace gifts. Charis meaning grace. Charismata, grace gifts. Because they emphasize that these gifts are not deserved or earned, but given. They're given by the Holy Spirit, by God. They are gifts given to us, are given by the triune God. Are those are gifts of visible expressions of the presence and work of God in the church. Paul says in, verse, in verses 4, 5, and 6 that it is the same Spirit and the same Lord and the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Uh, these verses, they, they speak of the generosity and the goodness of God in giving many gifts to His church. These verses, they reveal the unity of purpose and mission that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, to equip the church. Uh, a list of gifts are given to us in verses 8 to 10. Uh, it is a varied list. It makes the point, many gifts. Uh, the list is not meant to be exhaustive. It is a representation or representative of some of the different gifts that the Spirit has given to the church. Now, the, the Bible has those four lists recorded for us. The first one is found in Romans 12. The second one in Ephesians chapter 4. You can read all these passages at home. The third one is in 1 Peter chapter 4. And then our passage tonight. Now, the ones listed in our passage are these. The gift of wisdom and knowledge. The gift of faith, the gift of healing, the gift of working miracles, the gift of prophecy, the gift of discerning spirits, the gifts of speaking in various kinds of languages, and the gift of interpreting those languages. 
and we will come back uh, to this a bit later tonight in the, in the sermon, uh, to think uh, more about whether or not every single one of these gifts are still present in the church today. But we're not there yet. So for now, we will move on to consider our next point, which is found in verse 7. What does Paul say? He says, to each, to each, in verse 7, to each believer, says Paul, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, every believer without exception, without exception, has received a gift or gifts from the Holy Spirit. Every believer has something to contribute to the life and ministry of the church. It's no excuse for not serving every single one of us. And the gift or gifts that are given to each one of us are to be used, what does Paul say? For the common good at the end of verse 7. They're given for the common good to all those within the church. The gifts are given to the church to bless the church, to equip the church, to strengthen the church. They are given to the church for the good of all. They should not not be used in a selfish way. They should not be used in order to, for us to promote or elevate or exalt ourselves. Though there is, I believe, a real temptation and danger here for all of us to use the gift that God has given to us and make it about us rather than making it about being thankful to God that we received a gift that we can bless our church, our brothers and sisters with. Every gift says Paul, is important. Every member of the church is important. And this is illustrated for us in verses 12 to 26, where Paul uses uh, the metaphor of the human body to illustrate how the different gifts that God gives uh, are to work together within the church. So in the metaphor of the one body, and I wouldn't read it tonight uh, because in a sense I believe that you're very familiar with this passage uh, so we didn't read it. So in the, in the metaphor of the body, we see the unity that should characterize the church. It's one body. It's got many parts, but it's one body. So in the metaphor, the first thing we need to pick up on that is, is the unity. But then there are many gifts within the one body with members of the church serving together, and they're doing this for the common good. In the image of the one body and with many parts, we also see, so there's unity, one body, many gifts, but one body, but we also see diversity. We see all the members serving together, serving alongside each other for the sake of the gospel. They are interdependent of each other. They need each other, says Paul. They are given by God to support each other. Paul says in verse 21, he says there in verse 21, that the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The eye should not think too highly of itself and think that somehow it can do it all alone and think that it doesn't need the help of anyone else. So no one here can say, I can do it all myself. But on the flip side of this, we should not denigrate ourselves and think too poorly of our gifts either. So look at verse 16. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, I'm only an ear, what am I doing here? Uh, Paul says, uh, that would make it 
not any less part of the body. In other words, we should not think too highly or too little of the gift that God has given to us. Paul says in verse 18, but as it is God, God himself arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. These gifts that we see in the church are not randomly given. God has arranged them this way. They reflect the perfect wisdom of God. And we sometimes wish we had other gifts. We are sometimes envious of the gifts of others. But we shouldn't. We should focus on the gift or gifts that God has given to us and use them for the good of others. This is not a competition to see who has the shiniest gift. Each gift is indispensable to the life and the well-being of the church. Now, you might not feel like this. You might think, am I really useful or helpful? Does anyone notice that I, I come early to church and, uh, and I sweep the ramps there? You might, you might think, you're just like a little ear. No one cares. No one notices. Does anyone do it? We don't know. <laughs> right? But... What does the word say? It's indispensable. All of us were important. And the Holy Spirit apportions this. The Spirit of God comes to each one of us and individually gives as He wills in His wisdom. The Holy Spirit in His wisdom and power apportions. What a beautiful picture that is. That the Holy Spirit, that God would do this to each one of us, each one of us, one by one. So it's, so it's not wrong to pray or ask God for particular gifts. It's not wrong to pray and ask God to make it clear to us whether we should serve as a missionary or not. Uh, in verse 31, for example, Paul exhorts the believers at Corinth to seek the higher gifts. But the Holy Spirit remains sovereign in distributing gifts. The Holy, Holy Spirit gives as He sees fit. I might pray for something, uh, like Jordan was saying this morning, but the Lord, who knows all things, might give us a different gift. Paul says in verses 29 to 30, are all apostles? The answer is no. He says in, that same, in those verses, are all teachers? The answer is no. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. The Spirit gives as He wills. And so we should be content and thankful for what the Holy Spirit has chosen to give to us because God has a purpose for the gift that he gives to each one of us, has purpose. People often ask the question, what is my gift then? Well, it's a good question to be asking, very good question to be asking. Now, in some, in some churches, uh, people run a test. They go through a list of questions and answers. They work their way through a questionnaire or an inventory of gifts or some kind of search engine. I don't think that it, this is necessarily wrong. It can be helpful if done uh, with wisdom and discernment. But the Bible does not say, uh, turn to this page and this is how you do it. The Bible doesn't give us a formula. The Bible instead, I believe, simply encourages us to serve. And so I think the better question is, how can I serve? Uh, where are the areas of needs in the church? 
Ask your pastor. Ask an elder. Uh, you can ask one of the deacons. You can ask your connect group leader. What are the needs of our church? And how can I serve? This is a better question to be asking. And once you know, once you see, understand what those needs are, pray. Pray that uh, the Lord will help you uh, make it clear to you how you can fit in and serve in those ministry areas. Asking the Lord, Lord, are you calling me to this, to serve in this? Seek the advice of other Christians and others who are more mature in the faith. Then serve, get involved. In my experience, this is often how the Lord helps us discover what our gifts are. In some, the Holy Spirit has equipped the church with many gifts, a variety of gifts. The Holy Spirit has given to each one of us. The Holy Spirit has given us gifts for the good of the community of believers as a whole. And the Holy Spirit gives as He wills. We are one body with many members. This is how God has designed the church to serve together in unity with our many gifts. And the question really is, when what, what are the gifts when on 10.30 on a Sunday morning there's 350 people in the room? Think about that. Just ponder that for a minute. How blessed. Our third point tonight. The gifts are from God. They are varied. There are many. They are given to each one of us. But the gifts must be used with love. Or put it another way, the gifts are nothing without love. This is what Paul gets to in chapter 13. And again, I realized there was three chapters to be reading. And I just thought, uh, you probably know the passage of the, of the one body and the many members very well. And I thought, you probably know this passage about love very well. If, if anything, I think in 1 Corinthians, this is probably the text that most people know. You hear it at weddings. Uh, that's the text that everyone knows. But what Paul is trying to say here is that the gift must be used with love. And without love, the gifts, they are nothing. Now, if you, you would please come to me to chapter 13. And this is what Paul says. Now, the gifts are important. They are the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. They are given to bless us. However, like many things that God gives to us, we need to be careful not to use them to cause harm and to cause division and to cause trouble. Instead, we should use them in a way that honors God. This is what chapter 13 is about. It is to teach us how to use the gifts. And Paul, in verses 1 to 3, gives us three warnings. First, in verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. What he means is this, even if we were able to speak in the most impressive language imaginable, imagine you could do that and not have love in your hearts for others, or do not use your gift in a loving way, what does Paul say? You're like an annoying and irritating instrument. I paused for a minute to illustrate that, pick an instrument, and I thought, no, that's not a good idea. There's probably someone in the room that actually plays that instrument and think it's great. So I left it out. So instead of being inviting and appealing and winsome to others, it's possible for us to use our gift in a way that Sounds like a noisy gong. 
It's displeasing, it's uninviting, and even possibly repulsive. The second warning is in verse 2. There Paul gives us another example, another warning. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, every one of them, and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, he, he, he's using hyperbole. He's doing this to make a point, and his point is this. We can have all the knowledge in the world. We can have all the theological degrees in the world. We can have all the power in the world. But without love, we, we are nothing. In other words, the measure of someone's spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how impressive his gifts are. It has to do with whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is evident in their lives. When Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the very first thing that he mentions is love. Then joy and peace and patience and kindness, but the very first thing he says is love. Without love, Paul says, we are nothing. And then he says in verse 3 that we can make all kinds of personal sacrifices and yet again, gain nothing because it's not done in love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. And as I read through this, I, I wonder whether actually the opposite was true. But, but I don't want to think this. I, I wonder, but I don't want to think it. Um, so, you know, you could imagine, did Paul notice that they were not patient? Did he see in the church that they were unkind? Is that what he saw? But I, I don't want to think that. I just want to think that as he's thinking through love, he, he tells them what it looks like. Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love refuses to do that, rejoicing at wrongdoing. But he rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, all things, even the hard things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And Paul says to us in verses 8 to 12 that a time will come when the gift of prophecy uh, will cease. A time will come when the gift of knowledge will cease. And a time will come when the gift of tongue will cease. But faith, hope, and love, they will continue. They will endure. And the greatest of these is love. So let us not give way to impatience in the church. Let us not make room for selfishness and arrogance and rudeness in the church. Let us not cultivate envy and bitterness and cynicism and jealousy in the church. Instead, let us grow in love for God and for one another. For the gifts, as important and necessary as they are, they will cease. They will pass away. The gifts are temporary. They belong to this present age, but faith, hope, and love, they will endure. And our final point, and then I've got an addendum. The gift must be used to build up the church. They are given for the edification of the church. So chapter 14, and I believe uh, acts like as a case study 
here uh, for all that Paul has been saying so far. So here Paul gives us a concrete example from the life of the Corinthian Christians. And in this passage, Paul makes a comparison. He picks two gifts and he compares them. The first one he picks is the gift of speaking in tongues. And the other one that he picks is the gift of prophecy. He puts them together, he compares them. It's a case study for us to think through. So if there are those two things in the passage, you don't need to read through it quickly. I will point to those verses when they come and we'll read through them. Um, so if there are those two, gift of tongues, gift of prophecy, uh, let's begin with the gift of tongue. We'll start with this one. So if you've got your Bibles there, if you, uh, please look with me at verse 2. Now in this verse, Paul is speaking about the gift of tongues. This is what he says. Paul says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Why is, it, why is that the case? Uh, for no one understands him. No, no one can make any sense of what this person is saying. So in effect, that person is speaking to God. Uh, he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So in that debate, Paul starts with those who have the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, Paul does not say that it is wrong to speak in tongue. Uh, what he says is that when someone uh, speaks in tongue, and there is no one who understands and no one to interpret it, um, whatever is said, then whatever is said there is said to God. The, the content is lost. It's hidden. It's incomprehensible to those around them. If no one can interpret it, no one can translate it, it's a waste. Paul makes exactly the same point in verses 9 to 11. Again, I hope you got your Bibles there, verses 9 to 11. He says there, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, now my father uh, has come to spend Christmas with us this year, and he can relate to this verse. Uh, he comes from a Creole and French-speaking country. So when he comes, he was here this morning, uh, it doesn't matter how much uh, we might want to speak to him and say to him, if it's not said in Creole or in French, he just cannot understand it. Now, it's not like he, he's trying to be mean, or it's not that like he's trying not to respond to what you're saying. He just doesn't understand what's just been said. So whatever we say to him in English is lost to him. And that's a similar point to what Paul is saying here. And notice, when Paul unpacks what it means to be speaking in tongues, what does he say? Um, notice, he does not mean speaking gibberish. What's that word again, Jordan? Googly gook. Doesn't mean that. He means actual languages. Uh, languages that have meaning and can be interpreted and translated. And this is consistent with what we find at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down. So Acts chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, uh, the people say, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How then it is that we hear them, each one of us, in our own native language. Again, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 11, uh, we read, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians, they're all here, and they say, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. What they heard was not unintelligible. They heard them speak in their own native language. 
So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, if I speak in the tongue of man and of angel, he's using hyperbole. He's not implying that we can speak in the tongue of angels or that there is such a thing as the tongue of angels. He is exaggerating for the sake of making a point. It's hyperbole. But the point still remains. If we cannot understand what is being said, as Paul says at the end of verse 9, we are speaking into the air. We are wasting the gift. We are confusing people and we're not helping anyone. And so in that case, says Paul, the gift of prophecy is to be preferred. He says in verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Paul says that a word of prophecy, on the other hand, a direct word from God to his people, a revelation from God is better because it builds up the church. It edifies the church. It strengthens the church. It encourages the church. It consoles the church. It brings comfort to God's people. It's intelligible. It's useful. And it blesses everyone in the church. Paul says in verse 4, uh, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the whole church. Paul says in verse 19, nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. It, you, you would be more blessed uh, if I kept the sermon to five words than me saying a whole lot of a thing in Creole, which you wouldn't understand. Paul says this because he understands that the gifts of the Spirit are given for the building up of the church. They are given for the edification of God's people. They're not given to cause confusion. They're not given to promote individualism. They're not given to keep God's people in the dark. The gifts that God gives are given for the building up and the strengthening of the church. And so to summarize, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us in all truth. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we can profess Jesus is Lord and live in a way that shows that this is not simply lip service, but that the whole of our lives, that, that's the whole of our lives dedicated to Christ and his mission in the world. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give gifts to the church and to equip the church until the return of our Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives to every believer without exception. The Holy Spirit gives for the common good. We should be content and give thanks to God for the gift that he has given to us in his wisdom and sovereignty. We should use our gifts with love, pursue love, because the gift will cease, but love will last forever. And we should choose our gift for the building up of the church and not for its tearing down and not to confuse her. And then we come to the addendum. And I believe that maybe for some of you, that's the question you've been potentially waiting all night. Have the miraculous gift cease? Now, I phrase the question like this because it's already late. I've already had four points. So I phrase it like that uh, because there is, there, I believe, there is no debate that the Holy Spirit continues to bless the church with gifts today. There's no debate about this. The debate is, uh, most would agree that the Holy Spirit continues to equip his church with a variety of gifts. I mean, Christians across the spectrum will agree with this. The Holy Spirit continues to equip his church with a variety of gifts. 
the Holy Spirit continues to bless the church with teachers and preachers and missionaries and people with the gift of encouragement and service and prayer and so on and so forth. The debate is not whether the Holy Spirit continues to equip the church, but whether the Holy Spirit continues to equip the church with miraculous gifts today. That's the debate. Gifts of healing and performing miracles. Gifts of speaking in tongues. Gifts of prophecy and so on. These are the gifts that we, as a church, believe have ceased. They've passed away. Now, there are multiple arguments and different ways of approaching this debate, but I'd like to ask to consider the subject and the nature of miracles itself. So, for example, when we read through our Bibles, we notice that miracles do not occur on every page of the Bible. Well, it's not only every story, it's not as if every story there's a miracle. It's not on every page. You, you can read the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, nothing about the miracles in those books. Right? So when we read our Bible, we, we notice that miracles do not occur on every page of the Bible. There are times when miracles are particularly prominent, and then times when they are not. In fact, uh, when we read our Bibles closely, it seems that there are three, perhaps four periods in the Bible when miracles were noticeably prominent. First, we can think of the story of Moses and the Exodus. We can think of the plagues, the parting of the sea, the wilderness narrative, and how God worked through Moses to perform miraculous signs. The signs and the wonders and the miracles were performed to authenticate that the message spoken by Moses was from God. That was Moses' concern. He said, Lord, who am I to go and speak to Pharaoh and tell him all these things? And, and, and God said, well, I will give you those signs and, and, and miracles and works of wonders. And Pharaoh would have, could not, everybody could not just but conclude that you are from me. So that's the first example, Moses and the Exodus. There's this cluster there of miracles that happen. Secondly, we can think of the period of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Again, during that period, God worked miracles through Elijah and Elisha, again, with the purpose of validating his message before King Ahab and others. So what's the, what's the idea here? God has a message. He works through his appointed man to validate that the message is actually from him. And thirdly, uh, we can think of the time of Jesus and the apostles. Again, we see during this period a cluster of signs and miracles that God performed through Jesus and the apostles for the purpose of authenticating his message to his people. So, for example, when Paul uh, is writing to Timothy, he's passing the baton to the next generation of pastors and preachers in the church. He doesn't say anything about the spiritual gift or miraculous gift. He doesn't say anything. And he's passing the baton to the next generation. Should you think... He would say, by the way, make sure about this. He doesn't say a word about this. So already as Paul is passing the baton to Timothy, we start, the miracles become less and less. We don't see them. In other words, what we observe here is a pattern of God working signs and wonders through his appointed man for a period of time with the purpose of validating his message to his people. And therefore, we see a link, 
a connection between a time of revelation from God and a time of signs and wonders that validates the revelation that God gave to his people. And this is consistent. Moses, Elijah, Jesus and the apostles is to validate the message. Now, as the message of the gospel is validated and confirmed and shared and believed around the ancient world, what does Paul say when he writes to the church at Ephesus? He says to them in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself being, in the, being the cornerstone. What he means is that the church is being built on the foundational teachings of the apostles and the prophets. And a foundation that has been laid cannot be laid again. In other words, the testimony of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone form the completed and finished message of God to the whole world. And therefore, Paul is able to say, the foundation has been laid. That's final. And now we build on top of this. The writer to the Hebrews confirms this when he says uh, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So through the son and his appointed apostles, God has spoken once and for all. This is also what Jude the brother of Jesus said regarding the apostolic message. He said, uh, we ought to contend for this faith that is, was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so we conclude that the canon of scripture is closed with the final revelation of God to the apostles. And since the miracles were given to authenticate God's word, then with the close of the canon, we should not expect to see miracles and especially appointed men to perform them. And the history of the church, except for the past 100 years, with the rise of Pentecostalism, confirms this. If you read through the history of the church, the early fathers confirmed this in their writings as well. They observed that the miracles cease, and with them, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't believe that God cannot sovereignly intervene in His world, in our life, to miraculously heal or help or encourage someone. What we mean is that those miraculous gifts of the Spirit, as mentioned in those passages, gifts of prophecy, of speaking in tongues, gifts of healing by miracles have ceased. As Paul said in our passage, the gifts will cease. They will pass away. But faith, hope, and love, they will endure. So let us learn to grow in these. Let me pray for us. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we pray, Father, and give you thanks, Lord, for all the gifts that you blessed our congregation with. Father, we pray that we would use them with humility. We pray, Lord, that we would use them uh, for uh, the service of others, for the common good. We pray, Lord, that we would be thankful to you, and we pray, Father, that we would use them for the building up of your church. So help us, Lord, to do this by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.